Morning, everyone. Today's scripture is taken out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Um, that's t- chapter 12, verse 1 in Romans. And I invite you to follow along in your bulletin, please. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Steve, thanks for doing our reading this morning. Kim, man, amazing. And uh, there she is, hi. <laughs> amazing. And Kim wrote that song. So, Kim, thank you for praising our Lord. So beautiful. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for what God has to tell us this morning? You are an amazing God. You are the only God. You are the true God. You're the only one worthy of our complete devotion and worship. We offer it to you. We reverence you. We love you. And yet we want to do better. We need your help to do better. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to enable us to love you more, worship you better, serve you more fully. We ask for the Holy Spirit to do that wonderful work of teaching each one that's in this room through your word specifically according to their need. And you would do that through me for the glory of Christ. Lord, we're mindful of those who are part of this church who are serving as missionaries, some across the other side of the island, others across the globe. And we ask you to minister health to them both spiritually as well as physically as they share the gospel of Christ. For our deployed personnel, may you continue to watch over them and bless them and strengthen them in the ways of Christ. And for our students, Lord, may they continue to follow the ways of the Word of God and not be deceived by the world around them. Lord, we ask you to bless those who are struggling with illnesses, that you would bless them spiritually and mentally. And of course, Lord, our desire is that they might experience physical healing as well, so we request that from our loving Father. Lord, bless our children at this very moment and open up hearts to Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for the four children that received Christ last week in Sunday school after hearing the puppet show. Lord, bless them and may they grow in Christ. Speak to us now, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It was sometime well after midnight... I was standing on the side of a Mississippi State Road with my thumb out, praying for a ride. After some time, eventually a car stopped, and two long-haired, hippie-looking people invited me to get in the car. I had long hair and was hippie-looking too, so we all felt comfortable as I got in the car. And as soon as I got in the car, they said, oh, we're going to get off at the next exit so you can drive. (laughs) They needed some rest, so they got off of the next exit. They pulled into a gas station. While we're getting gas, we noticed there was a Mississippi State trooper um, in his car, I guess, resting for the night. And we pulled out of the gas station with me behind the wheel, and immediately lights started flashing, sirens started going, and this Mississippi State trooper pulled us to the side of the road. Turned on the spotlight of his police car on us. Over the loudspeaker of his car, he said, get out of the car with your hands up. 
you are all three wanted for the murder of a policeman. We got out of the car with our hands up. The police, policeman was silhouetted with his smoky, the bear brim hat with the spotlight behind him, carrying a rifle, and he said, it's loaded and it's pointed right at you. Get on the ground face first. Spread eagle. So there I am kissing the ground, spread eagle, with a loaded rifle over my head, thinking, I should have listened to my mom. (laughs) She said, you shouldn't hitchhike across country. It's too dangerous. I had been working in the oil fields in Texas, and it was a summer break, and I was hitchhiking from Canadian Texas to visit my sister in Savannah, Georgia, before going back to school. And little did I know I'd have such an exciting adventure on my hands. When one is face down in the dirt, kissing the ground, spread eagle, one feels quite vulnerable and totally at the mercy of the one standing over them. Today we're going to continue in our series entitled Encountering Jesus, and we come to an encounter where those coming to Jesus fall to the ground prostrate, face down, kissing the ground at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the encounter that I'm referring to is one that you and I are all too familiar with. And by all too familiar with, I mean that in a negative sense. We're probably so familiar with the story that we take things for granted. We're so familiar with it that we may fail to actually reflect upon what is in the story. We might hear that we're going to go to this text and we think, I don't need to turn there. I know this one. I got this one down. In fact, even your non-Christian friend will say, oh, I know that story. And I would challenge you this morning that maybe you've missed a few things. In fact, maybe you and I have missed the whole point of this very familiar text. I'm grateful to a professor at Dallas Seminary by the name of Timothy Ralston, who preached a message I heard online recently, and he had me thinking about this text in a new way, and I want to give him credit because the two points that we're going to look at this morning are adapted from the message I heard from him. If you take out your sermon outline there, it's in your bulletin, and then if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, let's see if we've missed the main point of this text. Matthew 2 verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Most people, when they hear this story, have a pretty good idea who Jesus is. Most of us don't have a very good idea on who Herod was and who the Magi were. If you look at your outline there, you'll see at the top of it, I say there's some very important historical background, and then there's all this blank stuff. That's for you. (laughs) Who was Herod? Well, Herod the Great was an Edomite. He wasn't Jewish, but he was raised as a Jew. 
And in about 39 BC, at the age of 34 years old, Herod was unexpectedly appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. And they wanted him to rule over the Jews as their king in the area of Judea. Herod was an egomaniac. He started spending large sums of money in order to create huge projects. And one of them was to expand the second Jewish temple. And a portion of that Jewish temple still stands today. It's the Western Wall. And he did that in order to try to favor, curry favor with the Jewish people by rebuilding and expanding their temple. But modern critics tell us that Herod was an evil genius of the Judean nation. He was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. In fact, he was such a wicked ruler that he had to institute security measures in order to protect himself. He had prohibited public protests. He had secret police who went out in the community to find out what people thought of him. And he had 2,000 soldiers, and their job was to protect him. They were his bodyguards. To sum this all up, we could say that Herod was a paranoid despot of a ruler. What about the Magi? Who were they? Well, the ancient Magi... And by the way, we get the word magician from that and magic. It's a Persian word. The Magi were a hereditary priesthood of the people known as the Medes. And they practiced astrology, and they were accredited with profound and extraordinary religious knowledge, viewed as experts in the interpretation of dreams. The Medes and the Persians kind of merged at one point, and Darius the the, the great king of Persia was so impressed with these magi that he established them over the state religion of Persia. And Persia, of course, is our modern-day Iran. And it was in this dual capacity as both religious and political advisors that the magi became the supreme priestly caste of the Persian Empire and even later empires, the Seleucid Empire and the Parthian Empire. Well, in the 6th century B.C., there was a young Jewish man by the name of Daniel who was taken captive and brought to Babylon. And he was able to do something that none of the Magi were able to do. He was able to interpret the dream of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And this young Jewish man, his name is Daniel... And we're told in Daniel chapter 2 that he was able to interpret the dreams that none of the magi could interpret. And so King Nebuchadnezzar elevated him, even though he wasn't racially a Mede, elevated him to the position of chief of all the magis. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was given a vision. And 600 years before it happened, he predicted the exact year that Jesus Christ would come in his triumphal entry and present himself as the king of the Jews, predicted by the chief of Magi's. This tradition obviously was passed down for six centuries through the Magi. 
And the Magi came to Jesus in our text. They now were part of an empire that was called the Parthian Empire. And at that time, the Parthian Empire was one of the superpowers of the day. It rivaled the Roman Empire. In fact, in 53 BC, the Parthians had delivered to the Romans their worst defeat in history, in battle. And so these magi who come to Jesus represent a foreign government that has already defeated the Romans at one point, and these are the two superpowers of the day that are in tension. And they are high-level Parthian priests who would have had diplomatic immunity as they came into enemy territory in Jerusalem. And Herod would be very cautious dealing with them. Now, when we think of the Magi, we think of three men who are dressed nice with three little presents. But that's not scriptural, that's just tradition. Common sense tells us that the Magi would have consisted of perhaps a dozen or more of of the Magi. Since they were traveling about a thousand miles from the area that we now call Iran to Jerusalem by camel, they would have had a caravan. They would have had servants and cooks, a huge entourage, including perhaps a few hundred Parthian soldiers, a few hundred, to protect these magi and the gifts that they are bringing to the king of the Jews. Their presence in Jerusalem could not be missed. And when this Parthian entourage of Magi entered Jerusalem, both the city and Herod were understandably greatly alarmed. I was thinking maybe it could be a little bit like Russian President Putin bringing his cabinet and a few hundred Russian soldiers with him and showing up in Washington, D.C. and saying, we're here to meet with the president of the United States of America. Oh, not Trump, the other one. (laughs) That would cause quite a stir. With that important historical background, let's reread what we just read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the king of the Jews, the despot that the Jews hated, behold, magi from the east, a huge entourage and caravan of hundreds of people from an enemy nation, arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of of the Jews. Not Herod, but the one who has been born king of the Jews, not the one who was assigned it by the Roman Senate. For we saw his star in the east. We're astrologers. We understand what the star means and have come to worship him. And when Herod, the king, notice the word order, it doesn't say King Herod, it says Herod the king. That's so we'll see the emphasis that Herod thinks he's the king. (laughs) but he's not the king of the Jews. Herod, the king, heard it. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The Magi have come to worship the king of the Jews, and it's not Herod. 
verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. One of the very important aspects of this text that's often missed is the aspect of worship. In fact, worship is clearly the main point of this whole text, of the entire story. In fact, worship is the whole purpose of the Magi's visit. Visit, Verse 9, And having heard the king, they went their way, the Magi, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The sole purpose for the coming of the Magi with their caravan and their hosts of soldiers, the sole purpose for them traveling a thousand miles into enemy territory, the sole purpose of taking a journey that could have lasted several months was to worship Jesus. And if we miss that, and if we miss what we can learn about worship from this story, we have missed the whole point of the story. Because remember in verse 2, they tell us why they came. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship I think it's important that we understand what worship is. The whole point of the story is the worship of Jesus. What is worship? Well, I think we can learn something from the Magi's example. We're told in verse 11 that when they came to Jesus, they fell down and worshipped Him. That word worship is a Greek word, of course. <laughs> it comes from the Greek word proskineo. And proskineo is a compound Greek word. Pros is a preposition. And as a preposition, it has many meanings. It can mean in order to or for the purpose of or toward. Kineo means to kiss. So if you put that word together, it means moving toward a kiss, something intimate, something close. And that word is translated and understood to mean worship, but it's also translated as to prostrate oneself. To lay down, face down, to fall down, to kneel, to bow low at another's feet. It's interesting when you look through the Scripture, worshiping and falling at someone's feet are often connected in the New Testament. And the only way that you can fall at someone's feet is to be face down. Look at a couple texts with me, Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew 28, we have the disciples and they are going to worship Jesus and fall at his feet. Matthew 28, verse 9. It says this in Matthew 28, 9, And behold, Jesus met them, the disciples, and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And the only way you can take hold of someone's feet is to be flat on your face, on your stomach, before them. There's another text in Acts chapter 10. 
It also shows someone falling prostrate to worship. But it's inappropriate worship. It's a story of Cornelius, who's a Gentile who is coming to know Jesus Christ. He's in the process. And Peter comes to give him the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. And the only way you can fall at someone's feet is to be flat on your face. And so Cornelius fell on his face before Peter to worship him. And Peter goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Verse 26, Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. It's not appropriate to fall on your face before me. In the last book of the New Testament, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, we have the Apostle John who has been having a vision of heaven, and he's talking to an angel. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 8, it says this. In verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. The only way you can fall down at the feet of someone is to be on your face. And the angel said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren and prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Falling on your face at the feet of someone is worship in the New Testament. And so when the Magi come to Jesus, their whole purpose of making this journey is to worship Jesus, is to fall on their face before Him, to lay prostrate before the child Jesus. When you are face down in the dirt, kissing the ground with someone else standing over you like a Mississippi State Trooper, you are completely helpless. Completely helpless. Completely at the mercy of the one before whom you have prostrated yourself. You have given your entire self into their hands. And from the Magi's expression of worship, we can learn two things. If you have your notes handy, the first one is this that we learned from their example. Number one, you worship by yielding complete allegiance to Jesus. You worship by yielding complete allegiance to Jesus. Allegiance, loyalty, commitment, fealty. This is why Herod is so threatened. He's threatened because an entire entourage of foreign leaders have come to make a public display of complete allegiance to the king of the Jews, and it isn't Herod. It's Jesus. As much as I love our worship songs, singing alone isn't in itself worship. Without complete allegiance to Jesus, without undiminished loyalty to Jesus, without total commitment to Jesus and His will, singing praise songs is just that, singing. It might be fun, it might be uplifting, it might be moving, you might feel better after singing, but it's not worship if your heart isn't in it. And that's not my opinion, that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, he's calling some people hypocrites whose hearts were not in what they said and what they did. 
Matthew 15, verse 7. Verse 7 says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. Lip service is not worship. Your heart has to be involved. Your worship, you worship by yielding complete allegiance to Jesus in your heart. When you bow before someone, the reason it's so respectful is that you're exposing the back of your neck. Now, we don't have this so much in our culture. We don't behead people, but in cultures throughout history, even today throughout the world, people get beheaded. And when you're bowing, exposing your neck, you're showing your allegiance. You're showing you put your life in the hands of the one to whom you bow. Your security, your future is in their hands. When you're laying face down, prostrate, kissing the ground, what can the Mississippi State Trooper do to you? Anything he wants. And that's what we are expressing when we lay before the Lord. When this entourage of foreign government officials that we call Magi fell down and worshipped Jesus as the King of the Jews, they were yielding their complete allegiance to Jesus. And then they took the next obvious step. Once you've given all of your heart to Jesus, all of yourself, the next obvious step is to give all your stuff to Him, everything you possess. What is yours is now viewed as His. Back in our text in Matthew 2, the last part of verse 11, after they fell down and worshipped, verse 11 says, Opening their treasures, they presented to Him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Notice this, it says they opened their treasures. That's a Greek word, thesavros, has the idea of a treasure box or a storehouse. They had all these treasures, their treasure chest, and out of it they started taking things out, and they gave it to Jesus. Jesus would use this exact same word for treasures, thesavros, as a man in Matthew chapter 6. After he'd grown up, he uses this word. And in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures, thesavros, treasure chest upon earth. Don't have your treasure chest, your storehouse on the earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures, thesavros, a storehouse of treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Because, verse 21 where your treasures are, where your storehouse of treasures are, there will your heart be also. Your heart follows your treasures, and your treasures follow your heart. And so when the Magi have said, you have our heart, it only makes sense they then would say, you have our treasures. So looking there at your outline, 
We've seen that you worship by yielding complete allegiance to Jesus. But the second thing that we learn here is you worship by transferring the ownership of all you possess to Jesus. You worship by transferring the ownership of all you possess to Jesus. It's quite possible that that's what these magi are doing, that symbolically they're saying as they give out of their treasure chest, they're saying you can have whatever you want out of here. You can have whatever you want. And the same with us. We offer it to Jesus. He doesn't take it all now. He lets us still use our things, but at any moment he may say, I want that. And we said, you can have it. It's already yours. While three hippie-looking young men were laying prostrate on the ground, face down, the Mississippi State Trooper was searching the car, opening the doors, looking under the seats, opening the trunk, allegedly looking for drugs. In the process, he discovered a full case of unopened Coors beer made with pure Rocky Mountain spring water, I'm told. My two hippie friends had bought it in Colorado to take home with them because they couldn't buy it where they lived. And this state trooper suddenly forgot that we were wanted for murder and said, oh, you transported alcohol across the state line without a license. And we go, what's the penalty? And he said, well, I confiscate the beer and I take all the money out of your wallet. And so he did and drove away. He had gotten our full allegiance and now he had our possessions. (laughs) They go hand in hand. And when it comes to worship, the first step is yielding complete allegiance to Jesus. And the next step is realizing that he can have anything he wants. It's his. You've transferred the ownership of all you possess to Jesus. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And when your heart's allegiance is with Jesus, so are your treasures. Now, it would be natural at this point to think, yikes! That's a huge sacrifice. And you'd be quoting loosely the Apostle Paul from Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You're prostrate before him. You're a sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And spiritual service, that word spiritual, the Greek word logikos, we get our word logical. You could translate this. The logical way of worshiping is to sacrifice everything for him. That is worship. You give your all. You give everything you are, everything you have, and you present it to Jesus Christ. And the Magi from the East understood this and lived it. What about you? I recall when the Magi came to my church when I was pastoring in Athens, Greece. Some of you have heard part of the story, but you haven't heard the new ending. (laughs) I was up on the platform like this serving communion. People would come up and maybe 15 people at a time, whatever we could fit on the stage, and I would personally hand communion to each person, and everybody else would wait in line to come up. And while I was doing that, a group of about half a dozen Kurdish men, refugees, who had just fled from Saddam Hussein after he'd gassed over 185,000 Kurds, women and children and men. They had fled to Greece, and we had been ministering to this group of people who had been camping high in a mountain where it was cold and and didn't have anything, just one spigot for about 1,000 people. 
we went up there to minister to them and offer food and, and hot tea and whatever we could provide. And we showed them the Jesus film in a tent, and we brought a generator and showed them the film and everything. And as a response, these six Kurdish men made it down the mountain to our church. Muslims. And here they were in front of me, wanting to partake of communion. And I thought, well, they didn't tell me what to do in seminary when Muslims come and want to have communion. 200 people are watching to see what I'm going to do, and I have a nanosecond to decide. I thought it was a good time to pray. Lord, what do I do? Give them Jesus. Okay? I gave them Jesus. I served them communion. It wasn't until working on the sermon that I learned the Kurds are descendants of the ancient Medes. That's where the Medes are from. That's where the Kurds are from. These were the Medes. These were the Magi coming for Jesus. If people from a false religion can recognize they need to fall at the feet of Jesus, can't we? Can't we? Will you pray with me? Lord, we worship you. We bow before you in our hearts. We want to worship you fully. We want to give you our full allegiance, Lord Jesus. You're worthy. As we're bowed in prayer, if you're here and you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart to save you, if you've never turned your will over to His, but you recognize He died for your sins, that He rose from the grave and conquered death, if you want Jesus, just cry out to Him and say, Save me, and He will. Come into my life, and He'll come in. Cry out to Him. Lord, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before You and we worship You. We love You, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'd like to close with Romans 15, 5 and 6 this morning. Romans 15, 5 and 6 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for celebrating Christ with us today. We'll see you soon. God bless.